Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Today's episode of Hang Up and Listen is supported by Slack. Slack brings all of your communication at work into one place. Create a new team right now at slack.com slash hangup, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 9th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to talk about the time that 42-year-old Mets pitcher Bartolo Colon hit a home run and joy and rotund men and donkeys named Pancho. We'll also be joined by James Myrtle of the Toronto Globe and Mail to talk about the hockey playoffs, and we'll discuss the state of the WNBA as the league gets set for its 20th anniversary season. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and a man who owns no donkeys that we know of. No childhood donkeys? Rode a donkey. When was that? In Greece. <laughs> summers in the village, delivering <laughs> squash, olives on the back of a donkey. It turned you into the great kicker that you are today. Stavros, my donkey. <laughs> my poncho, Stavros. Uh, with us from New York, filling in for Mike Pesca this week, it's beloved Hang Up and Listen guest host, Mina Kimes. Uh, Mina is a senior writer at ESPN the magazine. She has a very special relationship with Patrick Peterson's mom, which I wanted to mention <laughs> on this Mother's Day. Uh, and have you ever ridden a donkey, Mina? I have ridden a donkey. I'm from Arizona, where it's just a part-time hobby that many people have. I'm like I'm, that's a joke, but I have ridden a donkey, <laughs> a, bur- a burrow. I think I called it, but yeah. I Same am the animal. only one on the show today who has not ridden a donkey. This needs to be addressed immediately. Uh, we'll start I- a Kickstarter for Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to be a very robust donkey. If the donkey could support the weight of Bartolo Colon, I would be I would be happy to get on board. So for Slate Plus today, some very exciting rumors and in, in the Hollywood circles that I travel in. Space Jam 2 is happening. And the reason I want to talk about this 
is that J.R. Smith is rumored to have a role in Space Jam 2. And that just kind of opens up so many conversational possibilities. So if you want to be involved in this discussion. And theatrical possibilities. <laughs> in this discussion of Cav's role player anim- animations, uh, sign up for Slate Plus and get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangup plus. Uh, that is slate.com slash hangup plus. And now on to the donkey riding portion of the show, as if that portion hasn't already begun. On Saturday night in San Diego, 285-plus pound, 42-year-old Bartolo Colon stepped to the plate, career batting average of 0.89, 20 hits and 225 at-bats, and then this happened. Colon looking for his first hit of the year. He drives one! Deep left field! Back goes Upton! Back near the wall! It's out of here! Bartolo has done it! The impossible has happened! The team vacates the dugout as Bartolo takes the long trot, his first career home run. And there will be nobody in the dugout to greet him. (laughs) This is one of the great moments in the history of baseball. Bartolo Colon has gone deep. Uh, Gary Cohen on the call there with, I would say that's not an exaggeration. Stefan, they, vac- no. they vacated the dugout because they wanted to surprise the beloved Bartolo, oldest player in Major League history to hit his first career home run, uh, 19 years, 365 feet, 97 mile per hour exit velocity. One foot per pound. <laughs> for Bartolo. This, I'm, I'm a Mets fan, and so obviously... Bartolo has a special place in my heart. He's clogged most of the arteries in my heart. But this moment seems to have uh, transcended mere Mets fandom and has delighted fans uh, of all teams and all sports and just all right-thinking humans. What do you have to say about this? Stefan, you want to start? Sure. I mean, what it's sort of impressed on me is, A, it made me sort of read a little bit more about Bartolo Colon because I'm not a Mets fan. He did pitch for the Yankees, my team. He's been really good. He's got 220 wins. He's got more wins than Pedro Martinez. Yeah, he just passed Pedro on the all-time Dominican pitcher wins list. Putting him second behind Juan Marichal. And the way people talk, other players talk about Bartolo is with some reverence for his pitching acumen. And you don't get to almost 43 in big league baseball without being one of those players who understands the game, who utilizes all of the tricks of the trade to be able to keep playing. And with Cologne, it's clearly his mastery of location. It's his ability to adapt from the time when he came up in 1997 and was throwing close to 100 miles an hour to now where he's in the low 90s at best, but has the ability to locate all of his pitches. And he has become the embodiment of whimsy in baseball. We love whimsy. Whimsy in baseball. So, Mina, I think what Stefan's trying to say is that we like him because he's really fat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I wasn't watching the game, uh, but I just checked into Twitter. and It was one of those moments on Twitter where you know something good is happening, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you don't know what it is because it's just cry face emoji and exclamation marks. And it takes you a second to kind of apprehend what has actually happened. And then I saw the vine of the home run and a note attached to the vine which said his trot was so long it didn't fit in a single vine. (laughs) It would take, I think, five vines because it was more than 30 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) Yeah, where did it rank on 
the uh, tater trot list, 10th slowest, 11th slowest? Yeah, Larry Granillo does the tater trot tracker. Since 2010, it was 11th. David Ortiz, David Ortiz, David Ortiz, and David Ortiz. And you got to throw out one because... Injured during trot. Injured during trot, Luke Scott was. So Bartolo was faster than injured during trot. Um, (laughs) But yeah, he was 11th uh, since 2010. I yeah. kind of forgot about it until this morning when I logged on to my fantasy baseball page. And, you know, I tend to stream a lot of pitchers at the end of the week. So I was like, oh, who's available now that I'm dumping these pitchers? And I noticed that uh, James Shields, who is 80% owned, had been rapidly dumped over the weekend. <laughs> uh, I didn't figure out why until I Googled him and saw the New York Post headline, What is it like to give up a home run to Bartolo Colon? Asked if he was surprised to see Cologne's home run swing, Shields said, next question, man. <laughs> By the next day, I think Shields had gotten the memo that everyone loved him. He was like, mm-hmm. I have all this respect for Bartolo. He's great. Mark McGuire is the hitting coach for the Padres, and he said he should run around the bases as slowly <laughs> as he wants if you're like 42 and hit your only home run. Bartolo Cologne came along decades before Vine was invented. But he is basically the vine star of Major League Baseball. When he bats, his like little tiny helmet falls off his enormous head because mm-hmm. he like that's how bad of a hitter is. He does the like little league like spin around when you miss the ball. There was a blog post on MLB.com back in March that he hit a home run in batting practice. Like that was enough of a feat that it merited a blog post as, on as, MLB.com. As did a deconstruction of a foul ball that he hit. Right, yeah. Last week, th- this was huge <laughs> on uh, Mets Twitter. He had a very hard foul ball. <laughs> and MLB StatCast did a thing on yeah, his it. His exit velocity was like 100 miles per hour. It was, it was an, an awesome, incredible, awesome, an awesome foul. foul ball. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So I think that there are a lot of kind of euphemisms going around here about like why we love him. Oh, it's or it's his mastery. But I really think it is that he just is incredibly fat. Like He's the fattest, shortest pitcher in the history of baseball. Yeah, there is a list of – you can do this on Baseball Reference Play Index. Uh, who knew? A list of the 34 pitchers in baseball history who weigh more than 265 pounds. Didn't you love back in the day when uh, there's Jumbo Brown, you know? They weren't very subtle about uh, about nicknames back then. There was Three Finger Brown, Jumbo Brown, Lefty, <laughs> Chief, Fatty. <laughs> exactly. So he's the Jumbo Brown of our era. And it's it's just rare to see someone like every athlete in every sport is in better shape than we are is a, a physical he's like a physical marvel in reverse. You just look at this guy and wonder how he's able to do the things that he does. There's no excuse. For you, Stefan, you should be able to hit hit a home run off of James Shields. You too, Mina. <laughs> I I feel like it's more than just his you girth. know physical yeah his, his girth. You mentioned that he's a Vine star, but what's amazing about Bartolo is he's not on Vine. He's not on Twitter. He's seems almost he's not creating his own vines. <laughs> Not yeah, but couldn't you see Bryce Harper creating his own vines? I don't know if he actually does that. But what's so delightful about Bartolo is, you know, he's not, while not oblivious to all this attention, he doesn't seem to court it, if that makes sense. You know, the Times did that great feature on him last year, uh, which is how we know about Poncho, I think. 
maybe the poncho story had come out before, but that it had the all first these time one- I'd seen it. Yeah. First, so the headline of the story was defying time and space. Um, and it had all these great anecdotes about Bartolo's upbringing and poncho and, you know, growing up in this hillside village. And Bartolo barely gave an interview for it. You know, all these stories that come out are not through him. And I think there's something about that that also makes him extra appealing to us. He became more animated when talk turned to his family, to Pancho the donkey, or to anything related to El Cope. You just imagine Bartolo lighting up at the uh, the mere mention yeah. of Pancho. I think we need to explain Pancho a little bit, don't we? <laughs> Go and ahead. Pancho was his <laughs> pal, his donkey friend. Pancho taught him the work ethic that uh, let me made just, him a let major me, Can pitcher. I just read from Dan Barry's New York Times profile? Sometimes, while transporting bags of beans for his father's produce business, young Bartolo would park his pet donkey, Pancho, beside a sloping lot that served as a baseball field and play a few innings with other children using balls made of cloth. I, that, that sort of has everything, <laughs> like every yeah. cliche about an athlete growing up poor in a foreign country. But it transcends that because of Poncho. It does. So there was a machine that removed pulp from coffee beans, and Bartolo used to turn the crank. And now in his village, there's a sign that says, try your strength against Bartolo's. 25 turns, Bartolito. 50 turns, Bartolo. 100 turns, (laughs) Senor Bartolo. And we have to also add here that Pancho takes on added importance in Bartolo's life because, and I'm going to read from Dan Barry's story again, he is quoting Winston Yenas, known as Chilote, a former major leaguer working for the Cleveland Indians. Yenas recalls that while the young prospect did not have a typical pitcher's physique, he possessed obvious talent and a commitment to hard work, a trait that Colon once said he learned from the likes of, all together now, Pancho. 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 So let's talk about his PED suspension. 2012, he got suspended for taking testosterone. We have to actually go back a few years before that. Um, he barely pitched in the majors from 2006 to 2010. He'd won the Cy Young when he was with the Angels. He partially tore his rotator cuff and had some bizarre surgery. It was just a shoulder. It wasn't a surgery. I think it was more of uh, it was just a sort of a stem cell type treatment that was not illegal but not um, Injected fat and bone marrow stem cells from his own body and his elbow and shoulder to help repair ligament and rotator cuff damage. And the doctor who did it advocated using HGH in such procedures. This, again, is reading from Jay Jaffe. So he gets this weird surgery from a doctor who'd advocating using HGH. A couple years later, he gets banned for 50 games for taking testosterone. And this seems to have affected his popularity and reputation not a bit. Um, What do you make of that, Mina? Well, I think that it shows that the key to making the public forgive you for taking PEDs is to not look like you took PEDs. Um, It's perplexing. I actually had forgotten about it until you reminded us before this, and and it wasn't even that long ago, but it has sort of been removed from his story, um, you know, subsumed by the poncho story and the, and the gifts and what a likable guy he is. And it's kind of remarkable given how rarely that happens with baseball players who go through this. And I think it's also, Mina, that most of the players that we revile for taking performance-enhancing drugs 
are players that are worthy of our hatred. I mean, you think of Bonds, you think of Braun with Milwaukee. There was all, you know, the ostentatious press conference, the denials, the bullshit deflection stories. Colognes just said, I'm sorry. He said, I accept responsibility. I accept That's responsibility. It. And he wasn't a big, metaphorically, figure in baseball. He wasn't a face of the game. He wasn't someone that's doing endorsements and commercials and and speaking a lot to the press. He didn't have a high public image. And I think that also contributed to this because he comes back with the Mets and he does really well at a time when a pitcher is not supposed to do that well, or at least a pitcher that looks like him isn't supposed to do that well. And he's done well not by throwing hard, but by placing his fastballs, which I think also helps. You know, it doesn't feel like he owes his recent string of success to that. Um, it feels more like he's become craftier with age. Yeah, and we don't know that he's a good person. What we do know is he's an incredibly likable person. And well, testimonials are, are favorable. Well, from you know, teammates. You talk to the donkey and talk to <laughs> talk to the teammates. Who knows who knows what's going on behind uh, closed doors? But it's not just the home run. Like in the field, like he makes these like basket catches over his head. He had this amazing play last year where he threw the ball behind his back. The fact that he can do the splits, I think that he should have done a split on home plate. And the fact that he (laughs) deprived us of that makes me like him somewhat less. Just all these kind of testimonials, again, to his athleticism, to his grace. And I think Big Baby Davis is similarly... Beloved, a guy who's really big and um, can do things at his size that we wouldn't imagine that he could do. Just like a large, graceful man. There's something enjoyable about that. As a fan of the Seahawks, I'm sure you understand that, Mina. Yeah, well, as a fan of the Mariners also, you know, we've got this Korean guy, Ho Lee, who's been absolutely tearing it up. And uh, when we picked him up in the offseason, as soon as we got him, I was like, wow, he is a big boy. Turns out his nickname in Korea was Big Boy, uh, <laughs> and and he's he's actually lost some weight, but he's he's still an, an enormous guy and has become immediately a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. So the literal nicknaming tradition of American baseball players has moved to Korea. I'm happy to know that it, it's still alive. The only downside to Bartolo's home run is that it gives ammunition to people who think that pitchers should continue to hit. Mm. Rob Manfred actually said, <laughs> and this. Is my continuing, I mentioned this in the live show, my kind of continuing uh, uh, mission to inform people that Rob Manfred is actually seems like a delightful guy. His reputation is kind of like a doer, non-Adam Silver-like individual. But he was like, oh, we should continue having pitchers hit in uh, the National League because Bartolo Colon. Yeah. I like that guy. Because every thousandth at bat, something <laughs> great will happen. <laughs> Very much so. Okay. So before we finish the segment... Stefan pointed this out to me that tops, and this is the most genius thing that the baseball industry has done maybe in six decades. They now have this initiative called Tops Now, where they print baseball cards immediately that are only available for 24 hours based on events that this is a good bi- uh, business story for you, Mina, <laughs> that just happened. Like, milestones or fun things, whatever. So there's a Bartolo Colon baseball card. By the time this podcast airs, you will no longer be able to get it. But I bought five of them. (laughs) And I I want people to send out 
on Twitter, put a link to the podcast, put at whatever my Twitter handle is, at Stefan. You can include Mina too. And tell us what other childhood pets Bartolo Colon had. <laughs> and we will give away some Bartolo Colon 42-year-old 300-pound man home run baseball cards to our favorites. Today's episode is supported by Slack. It's a messaging app for teams that brings all of your communications at work into one place, integrating with the tools and services you use every day, services like Google Drive and Dropbox. We use it here at Slate. It's basically replaced email at slate.com. I don't really, I don't miss email that much. The, but we, we, yeah. I still well, email I with I you, Stefan. I could just, I could join the Slack. Stefan should join the Slack. Come on, Slate. Let uh, Stefan Fats into the Slack. We're all in there talking, sharing emojis. Try it out yourself. Visit slack.com slash hangup. Create a new team. Maybe invite Stefan. He'll feel better about himself and about your team. Uh, you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That is slack.com slash hangup. We are getting towards the end of the second round of the NHL playoffs. The Tampa Bay Lightning have already advanced to the conference finals. And the other series, Pittsburgh leads the Washington Capitals 3-2. to two. San Jose is up 3-2 on Nashville. And St. Louis is up 3-2 to two on Dallas. You might have noticed, Stefan, uh, because of your tremendous knowledge of ca- Canadian geography, that none of those cities are in Canada. Um, and there were none in even the first round of the playoffs. No Canadian teams. These are not exactly hockey hotbeds, except for, I guess, Pittsburgh, Washington, maybe St. Louis. We're having a spirited debate about this in the studio, about the hockey hotbedness of St. Louis. But uh, here to talk about this with us is James Myrtle, hockey writer at the Toronto Globe and Mail in a country with no playoff hockey teams. Hello, James, and condolences. Hi, thanks for having me on. I, I'll weigh in and say St. Louis is not a hockey hotbed. Just looking at minor hockey and things like that, they they like the Blues, but it's definitely not a hotbed. So you're right; there, it's mostly non-traditional markets that that are left. And how is that playing in Canada and across the league more broadly? The kind of mix of the cities we're seeing, and the fact that none of them are Canadian. I think a lot of Canadians are just not even paying attention to the NHL playoffs. You know, the ratings are down two or three times from what we normally see. I think the first round, the ratings were down 60% from what they were even last year. It was a really frustrating and disappointing season, basically in every single NHL market, except Toronto, where they really knew and intended that they were going to be bad so they could get a good draft pick. Are fans, Canadian hockey fans, would you say that they don't care? Are they actively upset and offended by the fact that you have cities like San Jose and Nashville that are in the playoffs now? Like, is it annoying or is it just like they wish their teams were better? Uh, it's, it's a mix. I mean, it depends who you talk to. I mean, you know, the diehard fans will watch the NHL playoffs no matter what. And that's why we're still getting ratings of, you know, Pittsburgh, Washington, I think is still getting a million fans uh, a game, which is pretty good for a country of about 30 million people. But I think the fans here in Canada are used to these non-traditional teams. I mean, they've seen Dallas and Tampa and Anaheim win Stanley Cups. And the frustration is that a Canadian team hasn't won since 1993. All the Canadian teams were essentially terrible this year. And the management of some of these American markets, they've basically GM'd circles around Canadian management. And that's the frustration is just that, 
you know, a lot of the generational star players are playing in the U.S., like Jonathan Taves and Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin, and the Canadian teams have really lagged in that department and in winning hockey games. Why do you think that is? I mean, is there an underlying reason that Canadian management should be so poor so consistently, or is this something to do with the the dollar? Does it have to do with the cyclical nature of professional sports? Some of it's cyclical, for sure. But, you know, my theory is that they're just not hiring the best management teams. And I think part of it is that Canadian ownership groups, you know, often it's one very rich guy, and they're they're often meddlesome. You know, I look at the ownership in Vancouver with the Aquilini brothers and what happened there with trading Roberto Luongo and Corey Schneider and hiring John Tortorella as a coach. And, you know, ownership's fingers were all over tearing apart a team that was one of the best teams in the NHL and then went to the Stanley Cup final game seven against Boston in 2011 and basically messed that all up. And, you know, Edmonton is, is a glaring example of ownership and management issues. So, you know, you start to see some trends there where ownership's making poor decisions and who they have running the team. They're, they're having too much of an impact on what's happening. And I look at some of the best-run American franchises, like in Tampa, where Jeff Finnick, uh, basically a hedge fund billionaire, owns that team. And lets, he hired Steve Eiserman, which was a brilliant hire as GM. He let him do his thing, provide him with as, as much resources as he needed. And Steve Eiserman quickly built that team into a contender. And I think that's a better model than what a lot of Canadian teams are using. Uh, James, turning to the American teams that are still in the playoffs, um, you know, I'm from Seattle. I don't have any hockey allegiances. So I was wondering who the most likable team is left or if there are any Cinderella stories or, I guess, teams that are particularly rootable. Mina wants to know which bandwagon she should jump on. Basically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but not the, not the best team, the most likable team. Oh, man, picking the best team right now would be really tough because the two teams that are considered the long-term powerhouses in the NHL are Chicago and L.A., and they've won five of the last six Stanley Cups. So they both went out in the first round. Boston's not around anymore. They didn't make the playoffs. Detroit's not around. They went out in the first round. It's kind of a real changing of the guard right now in the NHL. Other than Pittsburgh, who have been around and who have won a cup recently, there's not really any team that's been consistently done well in the playoffs. So you've got teams like St. Louis and San Jose that are perennially known for being basically chokers, I guess is a word you could use it, or teams that go out in the first or the second round, despite having a lot of talent, it looks like they could potentially win the Stanley Cup, which they've never done. So, you know, if your thing is you want to cheer for a team that's never won the Stanley Cup, this is probably the best year ever to do it, because you've got potentially Washington, if they can get by Pittsburgh, uh, you've got Nashville or San Jose, St. Louis, you know, there's there's a lot of teams like that, a lot of fan bases that have had a, a lot of heartache. Um, so it, it, it's almost like a completely new scenario. Unless we end up with Pittsburgh in there, that would be really the only team that's had any success. So it's been pretty exciting hockey. So, you know, it's it's kind of a shame that Canadians aren't watching because I think it's been a very, very exciting first almost two rounds so far. So one of the more kind of fascinating subplots has been that there have been a bunch of suspensions. Um, this is factored into the Capitals-Penguins series. And there's been a debate, a really interesting debate, I think, about whether suspensions on hits should be based on how injured the player is who gets hit, who, you know, suffers from whatever that hit is. Like, this actually comes up in the criminal justice system as well. Often punishment is based on, like, if you shoot someone, whether they survive or whether they die. I don't want to 
like uh, <laughs> get too uh, serious here, but that's a common debate in uh, not just hockey circles. So can you kind of walk us through what those suspensions have looked like and, and what the debate is around that question? Yeah, the one that really stood out for me was in the first round. There was a really bad hit from behind from Bellamar from the Flyers, hit Dmitry Orlov from behind, and that gif was retweeted and played over and over and over again uh, on social media and shown everywhere. And it basically, basically looks like Orlov's head is caved in and his neck goes into his body, and he basically goes straight headfirst into the end boards, about as hard as you can imagine going in there. And then there was this huge debate over whether he put himself in a bad position or... But but the thing is, he got up, and he and he kept playing, and he played the next game, and, you know, it, <laughs> so the suspension was just one game, you know, it, it wasn't a significant suspension. I was saying, I thought, oh, you know, maybe it'll be three games on Twitter, and then I heard from someone at the league, and they're like, there's no way this is going to be three games. So that's kind of the mentality where they are right now, And but that was the kind of hit where... I mean, you don't want to catastrophize everything, but Orlov could have broken his neck there if you watch that play. I mean, it's it's amazing how strong these guys are that they're not getting more hurt. Like, if that would happen to me when I was playing in my beer league game tonight, there's no way I would be getting up, and there's no way I'd be going to work the next morning. But the scary thing is that if you only punish what the ultimate result is, then you're kind of just waiting until there's a terrible result before you have any kind of action. And then it feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy that at some point one of these guys isn't going to get up. He's going to get stretchered off. You know, his career is going to be over. And I'd rather not see that. I'd rather see them punish the action as opposed to what happens. And then maybe we can weed some of these hits out of the game. And I have to think that the reaction to the, 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 the variety in the suspensions or the inconsistency in the suspensions is the kind of thing that the NHL will respond to because it it's illogical and it's dangerous. And if the message to players is no hitting the head, no targeting the head, no incidental contact with the head, then it doesn't make sense to give out a more severe punishment only when the effect of the hit is dramatic and causes injury. Brooks Orpik of the of the uh, of the Capitals got a three game suspension, right, for hitting right. for a late hit that caused an injury. Yeah, yeah. Which does you're right. It doesn't make any sense. It's interesting bringing up the criminal justice side of it because you know if you get a fight outside of a bar and you punch a guy and he falls over and he's got a sore face. I mean, maybe you get charged with assault. Maybe nothing happens. If you punch him and he hits his head the wrong way when he falls down and and you know, he dies, you're probably charged with manslaughter. So that is the way the criminal justice system works. But the whole idea of suspensions in hockey and in any sport is to be a deterrent and for players to think twice and and to change behavior. And it's hard to change behavior when the punishments are sort of moving all around and the players aren't really sure what's happening. And even before the play started, Willie Mitchell, who's the captain of the Florida Panthers, looks like he's going to have to retire because of concussions. He came out and said he thinks that there should be stiffer penalties for all of these kinds of things and, and the players should be better protected. And that is a debate that has been going on in the NHL for forever, my lifetime, you know, and they've made some strides towards that. But then you see some of these plays and it just feels like they haven't gone far enough. It's a sport with a lot of power and a lot of grace, but it's also like watching uh, car crashes over and over again sometimes. I mean, there's there's a lot going on out there. And, you know, so I can sympathize with the league that it's difficult, but I just don't think that they go far enough. James, you wrote a terrific story about John Shaka, 
who is the 26-year-old new GM of the Coyotes, who was just hired. I think he's the youngest GM in professional sports. He beats Theo Epstein by a few years now. Uh, and you got into his background, how he founded a company uh, that did hockey analytics when he was quite young. I think his dad was his first employee. And you wrote about how um, he's not only good at you know the number side of it, but he's actually good at networking and building relationships, which... I found kind of amazing because when I was 26, my network was like my college roommates. So my question to you is just, you know, do you think that people think this was an actually good idea or just sort of a stunt on the part of the Coyotes? <laughs> I, they don't think it's a stunt. You know, they believe in, in John Shaka and they believe that they can support him and that yeah, the Coyotes have been probably the most troubled team in professional sports the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, there's constant talk about relocation and the small city of Glendale, Arizona, is paying a lot of their bills and they're looking for a new arena and they've had all kinds of different ownership iterations over the years. And so I think a lot of people in hockey look at this and they're like, oh, here the Coyotes go again. They're doing something crazy. And <laughs> so, you know, it's, they, they named the. I don't know if he's 70 years old, but he's quite old. They named one of the owners the uh, president of hockey operations, and he said, you know, John's the youngest executive to become uh, a member of hockey operations, and I'm the oldest. And he kind of chuckled about that, and everyone in the hockey world was kind of scratching their head about what is going on. So, you know, it's it's a tough situation to put a 26-year-old guy into, but... And they're rolling the story. I mean, I, I called a lot of people about John Shaka, and, uh, you know, I, I came away impressed. You know, a lot of people had some very, very good things to say about him, and you can see why he rose as fast as he did. And the struggle for them is going to be they, they have one of the lowest payrolls in the league. They were second last in, in payroll. Um, it's a team that's losing a lot of money. It's a team where the head coach there, Dave Tippett, has asked for a lot more power in the front office. So now he's got a, a hockey operations role. He'll have some say in player personnel. And they're looking for uh, a veteran assistant GM to bring in and help John Shaka run the team. So, you know, the people that know John really, really well said they think that, that he'll surprise people with how well he'll handle this and that his acumen with analytics will help him a great deal. One executive told me it was insanity to, to name a 26-year-old with one-year experience in a front office as a GM, but we'll see. I mean, they certainly have a lot of factors working against them, and the fact that the GM is a young guy is probably the least of their worries right now, to be honest. Well, based on what you just described, it sounds, I mean, Sam Hinkie of the Sixers isn't young, but even if you are incredibly smart, you need to have a functional organization where everyone is on the same page and in agreement on what should happen. And especially if you're pursuing a strategy that's outside the mainstream, you need to have success with it pretty soon or else people are going to start blaming you. And if that franchise doesn't turn around in the next few years, I doubt that the like older guy who's the hockey lifer is going to be the one who's going to get the blame. It's going to be the 26-year-old who is throwing out all these crazy ideas. But it does seem like there's some advantage to be gained still, a huge advantage to be gained in hockey as compared to baseball, where net, um, you know, it, it seems like the spread of analytics and the appreciation of it is kind of more in the early stages in hockey. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And that's working in his favor if he's got the right analytics working for him. And the troubling thing, you know, I follow hockey analytics very, very closely. I know a lot of the work that people have done that's been published online or, or that's been presented at places like Sloan. And the thing is that John Shaka hasn't presented anything or hasn't put any of his work out to the public. It's all been contract work for teams. So I have no idea what his analytics are. 
I don't know what his theories on analytics are. He won't talk about it. The Coyotes wouldn't let me talk to him about it. So it's it's kind of like they call it a black box, basically, because we don't know what's in there. We don't know what he's using. And the proof is going to be in whether they can find good players using the data that he's using. So, I mean, they're trying to be kind of like an Oakland A's model where they've got a very low payroll and they're going to try and find hidden gem players and you know, that's a new thing in hockey. There haven't been a lot of teams that have done that. Carolina has just started with that. They hired a guy named Eric Tulski, who's a chemist, actually, who went to Harvard and, and Berkeley and has a Ph.D. And he, I think he has, has had some success in Carolina. I think people are going to see the Hurricanes surprisingly get better with a low payroll. But there's certainly an advantage to be gained if, if you're looking for the right things. James Myrtle is a hockey writer at the Toronto Globe and Mail. Um, James, by the next time we talk to you, maybe Mina will have decided <laughs> which uh, bandwagon to get on, maybe during the parade. Um, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. All right. It is our final topic of the day, and it's the 20th anniversary of the WNBA. The first games are this weekend. I very studiously tried to avoid saying that the season tips off because that's a pet peeve of mine, but I'm sure I've done it a hundred times. ESPN, the magazine did a special issue and our friend Mina Kimes had a story in said special issue. It's on Skylar Diggins, who plays for the team in Dallas, the Dallas Wings that have just moved from Tulsa. One of the uh, many points that Mina makes in the story is that nobody knows which team that <laughs> Skylar Diggins plays for and that this is an issue with the marketing of Skylar Diggins, that she is very popular and well-liked among the people that know who she is and the number of people that know who she is is very small. And Mina, this is something that happens to pretty much every uh woman who is a basketball star, that they yeah. peak in popularity in college. Then when they get to the pros, they kind of disappear. And your story is about how Skylar Diggins and um, you know Jay-Z's people are trying to change that with her. Yeah, this isn't a new phenomenon, right? Like we've had WNB players who have become somewhat famous on their own, Lisa Leslie, I think Candace Parker, most notably recently, but then kind of hit this ceiling in terms of fame, mainly because people don't watch the WNBA in large numbers. So even if they're beautiful and talented and funny and smart, they really aren't in people's minds. They're in advertisers' minds. Skylar Diggins is an interesting test case because she became extremely famous during college as she played for Notre Dame and during her sophomore year sort of rose to social media fame when Lil Wayne and Chris Brown tweeted at her. Today she has over 600,000 Twitter followers, which, as I point out in the story, is more than the entire WNBA. It's also a lot more than any other player that you can think of by a lot. And they tweeted at her basically because she's an attractive lady. They're like, you're hot. Yes. Skylar Diggins. My wife, Skylar Diggins, you know, and then Drake was famously obsessed with her and would post these creepy Instagrams of her um, just writing like amen uh, and kind of bizarre hashtags. And they actually did a skit together at the ESPYs where she, he sort of acknowledged his obsessive fandom. And all this is great for her uh, as a you know professional famous person. But the problem is, you know, or the question is, I gather, I guess, whether or not she can transcend the WNBA and become as famous as like a Serena Williams. That's clearly her goal. And what struck me as really interesting about your story, Mina, was the the deliberateness with which Skylar Diggins is manufacturing her celebrity and her career. And it wasn't clear to me 
whether she is doing that because she wants to be a celebrity and therefore have a bunch of endorsements that will set her up mm-hmm. for life and make her a rich person and someone who can um, be in that circle of social media and entertainment or whether she really wants to leverage basketball as a as the conduit toward her popularity. I think that's the dilemma here, which is she needs basketball, but then it's a limiting factor in her fame. And I think she's aware of the fact that, you know, female basketball players haven't become super famous on their own. So, you know, one of the things we talk about in the story is she endorses all these products and she's a Nike spokesmodel, but she's models sports bras and a training app, you know, things that aren't necessarily confined to basketball, which I do think is a very deliberate strategy to appeal to a broader audience than just women's basketball fans. Well, she's kind of in the same position as a lot of Olympic stars, people who are famous because they're good at a sport that people don't habitually watch. But she's in even kind of a worse position because people don't care about women's basketball in the Olympics. Based on the popularity of the sport today, this could change. There's nothing she could achieve on the court at this point that people will care about. Do you think that that's that's fair to say? Be careful when you say people. I mean, there is a fan base here and there is a built-in fan base for her that came from college. There is a built-in fan base for the WNBA. It is not a mainstream national fan base. Right. There's not... you're, you're right. I should say there's nothing that she can do on the court that will make her as popular as a woman who plays on the U.S. national soccer team or as a star tennis player. Like we're kind of going down the list mm-hmm. of sports that mainstream U.S. audiences pay attention to. Right. Like even though most people don't watch the women's soccer league in the U.S., they everybody watches the World Cup every four years. So Abby Wambach and Alex Morgan get this kind of jolt of fame every cycle that can sort of carry them over until the next time. Um, you know, women's basketball players don't have that. And this sort of cuts to the issue with the WNBA, which is, you know, what can they really do to grow? Uh, what would be an effective marketing message for them? Obviously, they need these stars, but the stars play overseas most of the year. Uh, Skylar Diggins has been an exception, which I think is interesting and also deliberate for her. And what was really interesting to me, Mina, is the contrast between your story about Skylar Diggins and a story that Kate Fagan wrote for the same issue of the magazine in which she went to Russia to Yekaterinburg and hung out with Diana Taurasi and Brittany Griner, who were playing there in the WNBA offseason. And they are all about basketball and they talk. You know, you said it's almost like a subtweet to your story. They're almost dissing Skylar Diggins because they're over there playing in anonymity, bragging about how they're totally cut off from social media. They don't care about how many followers they have. And Griner says that she's learned from Tarasi to ignore the sort of public reaction to her and the accumulation of followers in favor of playing basketball. And they're making like a million dollars to play there in this season. These teams are run by oligarchs. They're not based on any market principles. But these two athletes and Tarasi was paid $200,000 last year not to play in the WNBA by the owner in Yekaterinburg. So there's this clear contrast between we're just ballers and, oh, by the way, we're also making a million dollars balling overseas versus Skylar Diggins, who's passing up that kind of money to try to create a brand. Yeah, I think 
each player is doing their own individual calculus, right, into how they can maximize their, I assume their happiness, but also their earnings and their career and their brand and whatnot. And, you know, many players, many stars like Tarasi have chosen to go overseas and they can make a ton of money. And then your Skylar Diggins's realize that they can stay in the U.S. and maybe build their brand and get endorsements that could potentially expand their market and their audience and all of that by staying in the U.S. throughout the year. I think that what Dickens is doing is probably better for the WNBA, which has been hurt not only by having stars play overseas and then maybe potentially not play during the summer, but also not be here to do endorsements and sort of stay in the public consciousness. And that also, I think, hurts the growth potential of the league. Tarasi said in the piece, fuck Facebook. It's like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) she doesn't care. Take that, Zuckerberg. She's going in on Facebook. I've won yeah, fucking three gold medals. This is all dashed out in ESPN the magazine. So you can buy this magazine for your children. I've won fucking three gold medals. Are we really talking about Twitter followers right now? And then Griner says, D is the damn best. She should be on every damn poster. Well, <laughs> glad they're ha- I mean, I'm glad they're pleased with each other. No, I mean, it's, it's fine. I think not every player needs to have this like all for one, one for all kind of philosophy as you said it's much better for the WNBA if they did and i think that in the women's soccer league i think they really have no choice but to have that philosophy given that nobody's that paying them a million dollars to go play in russia right like their only kind of um opportunity to have successful long-term careers and especially for ones who are not just guaranteed to be in the national team pool, is to have a domestic league. And so I think there is a luxury for players like Tarasi and Griner to be like, you know, I can just do me. But let's be let's let's be honest. I mean, how much Mina is Skylar Diggins staying in the United States and creating a brand out of altruism or brand building for the NBA? It felt to me in reading your profile that she was building the Skylar Diggins brand, not the WNBA's brand. That was her motivation. For sure. She's doing what's best for her. And I think you got to admit, it's nicer to stay with your family and your friends during the offseason than playing in Russia where you don't know anyone and going to the mall every day for dinner. So she clearly has chosen a path that I think is optimal for her and her brand and maybe her basketball, I don't know. But the WNBA should take some lessons, I think, from Tarasi playing overseas. You know, they do have max contracts, which is why players like her choose to play overseas. The problem, I think, is that almost 30% of the league gets these contracts. So you have this huge upper middle class in the league. And as a result, they can't pay stars a ton of money, which might incentivize them to stay. Yeah, I don't really understand that. Kate Fagan raised that point in her Tarasi mm-hmm. Griner piece. Like why? I mean, I guess the answer is obvious. It's like for cost control. But why wouldn't they allow an owner to just pay as much as he or she wants to like Monica a, Abbott. Yeah, to get a player like Tarasi or Griner or whoever. Well, because the WNBA is still governed by this principle of, of austerity, much like Major League Soccer and the, the idea that we want to be around for 50 years or 80 years and not only for 20 years. Um, so those economic forces still do play a role. But like those other leagues— But and maybe that's like short-sighted. The, and I was just going to say, like the Women's Soccer League and like, the, like Major League Soccer even, there have to be ways mm-hmm. to make accommodations, particularly when you're getting players like Skylar Diggins and Elena Deladon 
who are developing public profiles that transcend the league and transcend the sport. Yeah, Monica Abbott, you mentioned Mina is the softball pitcher who just got a million-dollar contract, million dollars over several years, quote-unquote. Stefan's making finger quotes. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look at the MLS and they have the designated player will, right, where teams can reward a single star or do some sort of creative financing. And I think the league would benefit from at least having that option so that individual teams could try to lure players like Tarasi to stay because they do need these stars if they want to continue growing, I think. And Fagan also mentions that leagues thrive on controversy. I didn't really buy that argument, but I do think the league would get more attention. Maybe this is just a short, short-term short idea, but if there was a team that had like Tarasi and Greiner and Deladon and Diggins all on the same team, and there was an owner who wanted to spend to have them, like fans really love super teams and want to see all the best players play together. Stefan's rolling his eyes at me. Well, because that's that's league suicide if you're not willing to lose tens of millions of dollars a year. It's not functional. And let's not forget the NBA does not bankroll the WNBA anymore. There are individually owned franchises here. They have to operate with the same sorts of principles as other startup leagues do. Yeah, I mean, well, then you get the UConn question, right? Which is if you have one superpower dominant team, is it good for the sport? Is it bad for the sport? I think Golden State has shown us that it's good for the sport. And it definitely would help the WNBA, I think, if there was a team that had accrued sort of a reputation for having stars and became sort of must-see TV. So that's definitely, I think, a thing that would help them in the future. All right, let's move on to afterballs. I'm trying to acquire as much information as I can about Jumbo Brown. He had 29 saves, led the league twice in saves. He uh, was born in 1907 in Rhode Island. There were no saves. Was, there was, were no saves. He was the size of Rhode Island. Uh, he, he had 29 to retroactive saves, posthumous saves. <laughs> he is known mostly for his large size, according to Wikipedia. Hey, what are you going to do? ERAs of 3.42 and 3.32 when he led the National League in saves in 1940 and 1941. <laughs> I don't know why Stefan's trying to take Jumbo Brown saves away from me. <laughs> uh, Mina, what is your Jumbo Brown? What Jumbo Brown? Jumbo Brown sounds like a sandwich. Um, for my Jumbo Brown, I'd like to talk about the Olympics, specifically what the Americans will be wearing to the Olympics. Um, the U.S. Olympic Committee unveiled the closing ceremony outfits this week. They were characterized in a press release as crisp, sporty, and classic. The men and women are wearing red, white, and blue button-down shirts, worn over striped T-shirts with chino shorts, boat shoes, and striped belts. They look like the villainous rich kids in an 80s movie. They are so preppy, they would get kicked out of a young Republicans club for dressing too conservative. The uniforms were designed by Polo Ralph Lauren, who won a contract in 2008 that lasts through 2020. Before the Beijing Games, they were produced by Roots, which is actually a Canadian company. The U.S. Olympic Committee dumped them, not because of this Ted Cruzian situation, but because they felt the looks were too casual. According to a story that ran the Wall Street Journal that year, Roots had pitched a yoga-inspired technical green product, but the powers that be preferred a more formal look, which is a nice way of saying they wanted the athletes to look like old white men who summer in the Hamptons. So I went back and looked at Americans' Olympic uniforms throughout the decades and quickly realized that even before the modern era of berets and blazers and pony logos, they have always been hideous. 
In the 1970s, our men wore blue formal suits and ties, the world's sportiest pallbearers. In the 80s, our winter athletes wore cowboy hats with shearling jackets, preempting Brokeback Mountain by more than 20 years. At various points, our female athletes wore long skirts, and the men wore baggy Sinbad-like blazers, probably to hide their hideous out-of-shape bodies. Throughout the last few years have been comparatively benign, a mini scandal broke out in 2012 when word got out that Ralph Lauren's uniforms were actually made in China, which, when you think about it, is a much more American thing to do than wear a stupid beret. Very well said. <laughs> well, those are amazing. The, Fuck I berets. Mean, That's what Diana Taurasi would are they say. Like, are they wearing like dock siders too? Is that the, <laughs> what's the footwear there? The boat shoes. They're they are boat, boat shoes. shoes. They are wearing boat shoes. Which, especially with Zika, they're rolling up their shirt sleeves and wearing shorts. It seems uh, a little stupid to me. All right, Stefan. Top that. What's your jumbo brown? All right. Well, two weeks ago, I talked about the disgrace of baseball managers eschewing jerseys for T-shirts and hoodies. And now I'd like to address a more salutary baseball uniform development. The boom in single-digit pitchers. The single-digit pitcher is not Jack McDowell, who gave the finger to Yankees fans more than 20 years ago, but a pitcher who wears a single-digit uniform number. And you may have noticed single-digit pitchers are rare. And that's because 0 through 9 just look wrong on the back of a major league pitcher. And why do they look wrong? Because they are rare. And I know, Josh, that there is a rhetorical or logical phrase for that phenomenon, but I don't know what it is. All right. There are two single-digit hurlers on big league rosters this season. Starters Marcus Stroman of the Blue Jays. He's wearing number six because his grandmother's birthday is March the 6th. And Mike Leake of the Cardinals, who took eight after joining the team this offseason because that's what he wore in college, where he also played outfield. Two single-digit pitchers in a season is a lot. That's how many there were when I first wrote about this for the Wall Street Journal in 2005. This year, we've already had a third Blake Snell, a top Tampa Bay prospect, he wore number four when he was called up for a spot start against the Yankees in April. He got sent right back down to the minors. So that's three. And then we have the potential. And as you can imagine, Josh, I'm very, very excited about this. The potential to see five single-digit pitchers in 2016. Here's what needs to happen. Reliever Adam Odovino of the Rockies needs to get his ass back to the big leagues after Tommy John surgery. He is due in a couple of months. Odovino is a veteran. He switched to the number zero in 2013 because he wore zero in high school because he was the big O. Um, so that would be four. The fifth would be Carl Edwards Jr., nickname the String Bean Slinger. He wore six when he debuted for the Cubs last September. Now, I'm a little concerned about both of the youngsters. Edwards is wearing 11 in AAA right now. Theo Epstein, president of the Cubs, if you're listening, recall this kid and give him that single digit again. Don't let him wear 11 or some other two-digit number. Blake Snell is wearing 37 in the minors. And his Twitter handle is Snellzilla11. And I'm guessing not because Snellzilla 1 through 10 were taken. Regardless of what happens when he's recalled, and he will be recalled, he, he, he has to wear that single digit again, too. Four is his number now. Stefan is wagging his finger. I am wagging my <laughs> finger at Blake Snell. He wore it once. It counts to the season total. But I want to see this go on. I want to see all these guys at the same time in the big leagues wearing single digits. Five would be crazy. My research for the journal, and I did a lot of research for this story, Josh, indicates that five in a season hasn't happened in 70 years. 
And while I do think that single digits do look bizarre and somehow diminish the pitchers who wear them, the fact that players want them and that clubhouse managers are willing to distribute them is a different kind of single digit to a baseball taboo, which is always good. Plus, this is the 100th anniversary of numbered uniforms. The Indians wore numbers on their sleeves in 1916 and 17. The Cardinals did it in 23. But the press thought numbers were stupid and management worried that fans wouldn't buy scorecards. It wasn't until 1929 when the Yankees announced before the season that they would put them on the backs of jerseys, starting with one for the leadoff hitter down through eight, which was usually the catcher, that number stuck. Ruth was three, Garrick was four, etc. The Yankees gave pitchers numbers 11 through 21. The Indians, by the way, were actually the first team to go on the field with uniform numbers on their backs. That was because the Yankees' opening day was rained out. Lineup-based numbering didn't stick, but giving pitchers double digits did. Exceptions were few and usually brief. Bob Feller wore number nine as a rookie. For my journal story, I tracked down some single-digit pitchers. Dooley Womack said that he was assigned number three for the A's in 1970 because the equipment manager wasn't sure what position he played. Reggie Jackson saw him wearing number three and yelled at him to get a different number because single digits were for position players. Bill Monboquet, who wore eight for San Francisco in 1968, told me, I'm looking at this every day in my locker and saying, what the hell am I doing with number eight? Josh Towers of the Blue Jays, though, liked his single digit when he was called up to the majors in 2003. The team was on the road in Yankee Stadium, and the other available jerseys that the club he had were too big. Towers told me he thought to himself, we're in New York, Mickey Mantle, yeah, I'm keeping it. And he did keep it for all five years that he pitched in Toronto. Finally, David Wells was with the Red Sox in 2005. He wore number three to honor his idol, Babe Ruth who pitched for Boston, but before the Red Sox wore numbers, Wells was tipping it at around 250 pounds yeah, at the time. Speaking of beloved fat pitchers. <laughs> yes. He was, he was Cologne-esque that season. Theo Epstein, who was Boston's GM at the time, gave me one of my all-time favorite interview quotes. Quote, I assumed, if anything, he'd go for three digits to fill out that jersey. There's a lot of white space there. Thank you, Theo Epstein. I can't believe Bartolo isn't the big O. Josh, what's your jumbo brown? The NFL draft is over, but I don't want to let the moment pass without talking about something very important. There's a guy on NFL Network named Mike Mayock, an analyst, draft analyst. He is fascinated by a particular trait possessed by only a very few draft prospects. Here is Mayock in 2014 He's talking with Rich Eisen about Auburn offensive lineman Greg Robinson. This is Greg Robinson going through the drill. He's, he's checking all the boxes, Michael. Yeah, he he really is. Look at that big bubble butt. That's a, that's a power generator, those that thighs, quads, and the bubble butt. Offensive linemen love that. Huh. I love the, yeah, he is. <laughs> Just the longing in his voice. And then the the, uh at the end. Here is Mayock last year talking about Stanford lineman Andrus Pete. He's got dancing feet with that lower body. It's unbelievable. Look at the body. Look at that bubble butt. And finally, here's a discussion this year on the NFL Network set of another Stanford lineman, Joshua Garnett. And Mayock pipes up only at the very end body to the Arizona Cardinals. They need to replace that. They used to have the best offensive line in the in the, in the league and all of a sudden, they're better today. Like that. Powerful <laughs> bubble butt. Powerful bubble butt. Just could not resist. 
according to the Google Ingram viewer, the use of the term bubble butt has exploded since 1990. <laughs> it's 10 times more frequent. Before 1990, it was 0.000000020% of the time in the Google Books corpus. Now it's 0.000002%. So 10 times it's exploded. According to the Rutledge Dictionary of Modern Slang and Unconventional English, it is a noun. The definition is large, firm buttocks. It's dated uh, to the United States in 1990. And there's also a note in here calling it a pornography fetish. Fascinating. Uh, Fascinating, Mike Mayock. Um, (laughs) And this is not just a pornography slash NFL draft situation. The Hall of Fame, uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, has an online repository of scouting reports of players. There's a 1994 scouting report of a guy named Dante Powell by a scout named George Bradley under physical description. It says, good athlete's body, slight build, bubble rear with strong thighs and high waist, looks part. He had 74 major league at-bats. The Rochester Democrat and Chronicle in 1999 noted that one NFL draft primer published a glossary defining the term bubble butt as large buttocks and thigh area, considered a positive. The Palm Beach Post in 2003 said that Pro Football Weekly noted that a prospect named Tyler Whitley had a big bubble butt and good hips, but Whitley wasn't thrilled with that description. My mom was offended by that, he said. It's actually a positive trait, Taylor Whitley's mom. Um, but I wanted to note, you've got to um, close with a, very, with a strong uh, twist ending in Afterball. That's, that's my, uh, my lesson to all of you kids out there who want to do Afterballs. So the thing that I noticed this year that's different, or maybe I just hadn't noticed before, listen to these NFL draft profiles. These are from NFL.com. Greg Milhouse, thick bubble butt, provides for low center of gravity. Avery Young, big bubble rear that he can sink to help him anchor when being bull rushed. Steven Weatherly, long-limbed frame with wide hips and a big bubble should handle more muscle. So now it's just bubble. Bubble. We're not going bubble butt, not bubble rear. Rodney Coe, thick bubble with good natural strength in the lower half. Sayosi Iono, sturdy, durable build with thickness through bubble and down his calves. Devondre Campbell, looks the part on the hoof with thickness through bubble and thighs with tapered calves. And then my favorite, Austin Johnson, exceptional size and girth with burly bubble, thighs and calves. It's always nice when the NFL appropriates pornographic terminology. (laughs) into its scouting reports. On the hoof is somehow more disturbing to me than <laughs> bubble even. And that's, uh, that's a high bar to clear, the bubble bar. Uh, I think we might be played out here by bubble butt by Major Laser. We look at the body. Look at that bubble butt. Bubble, bubble butt. Bubble, bubble, bubble butt. Bubble butt. Bubble, bubble, bubble butt. Bubble butt. So uh, we'd love your feedback from what we talked about today. Uh, posterior and otherwise. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. 
Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Turn around, stick it out. Big bubble butt. That's a, that's a power generator. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.